we have been acting as though we've been in Philippians 1.1 for several weeks. And Philippians 1.1 does say from the heart of the Apostle Paul that there are to be elders and deacons in the local church. We know that simply because they were listed there in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. We have been stopping right at that point because we have been determining in our own hearts and in the life of our church what are elders, biblically speaking? Who are deacons? Biblically speaking. And we've been talking about a number of ways to determine the answer to those questions. And we occupied ourselves with, first and foremost, the calling of an elder. And we spent a good amount of time talking about that, the calling of an elder. And then we moved on from the call of an elder to the character of such a man. The character of of such a man. And you know that one of the first categories, if we could sort of divide up 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, which gives us these character qualities, if we were able to take these character qualities and divide them up into sections or categories, we occupied in the first sort of subsection these marriage and family or moral life qualifications. I mentioned to you that the overarching banner term of an elder's life is that he be above reproach. And then coming as an outflow from that banner term, we talked about the fact that that man is to be a one-woman man. That means he is totally devoted to the wife that he is married to, which of course implies in the strongest possible term that all elders must be male because he is a one-woman man. These are one-women men. They are those who see their lives as totally devoted to the wife God has given to them. They also have a household in which they are managing well, continually keeping their children under control with all dignity. There's a self-control, a constraint upon that home for which when you look at his life, he's managing that home well that gives him the platform for which then people would affirm that he can handle the church well. And then we also looked last time at the concept of an elder and his qualifications being one who is hospitable. He's a stranger lover. He and his wife love to entertain the saints and even those to whom they've never met, maybe even as a great opportunity for gospel conversation with those who come into their home. This is his marriage and family life. This is is his morality at home. And we spent a great deal of time looking at those things because they're not only very controversial, but they are so incredibly important 
when you and I are looking to men to be elders in the local church. It's a high and holy calling. And it's one for which these men must aspire. And as they desire the work of the office, you and I will affirm them because we're looking at their lives in this family way in such an incredibly important task of reproducing in the church what you're seeing be lived out at home. Now for this morning, I want to talk about another category of the qualifications for an elder, and that might be what we could call his thinking or his mental life. His mental life, the way he thinks, who he is in his mature spiritual development by way of his thinking, the way he processes things. Not the idea of the prowess of his intellect, but the sense of the spiritual qualifications for how an elder should conduct himself as he thinks, and then his behavior as the outgrowth of his thinking, his mental life. And believe it or not, when you look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, and you look at all of these qualifications, and if you enumerated them all, there would be at least 21 qualifications overall, and at least 7 qualifications regarding his mental qualifications, his spiritual stability, we might call it. And I want to go over those with you this morning. And the first one is this. The first one is that he is temperate. Look in your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll go back and forth, Timothy and Titus. I may not always have you turning uh, to Titus 1. I may do it very, very quickly so that we can get everything in. We have the message uh, for this morning, and then we also have the wonderful joy of celebrating the Lord's Supper together, which, by the way, we hold open communion here at Bethany, which means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, whether you're a member of Bethany or not, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, all right? 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, the saying is trustworthy, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, and then this phrase, sober-minded. Sober-minded. That's the first on this list of these uh, mental qualifications. These uh, spiritually mature men who have a sober-mindedness about them. Some of your translations may say temperate. Temperate. That's a good word. His uh, temper is temperate, all right? Sober-minded. It's very close to what Titus says in Titus 1.8 about being self-controlled. Here's what temperate means. Here's what it means to be sober-minded. It means a kind of mental sobriety. Have any of you ever been driving along in your car, especially um, at uh, holiday times, and you see a bunch of lights flashing ahead and you see a bunch of policemen who are stopping all the cars for what they call a sobriety checkpoint. Anybody ever had that experience? Yes, several of you. It's a most interesting experience, especially if you're sober. 
Because if you're sober, and when it comes time for you to drive right up to the point where the nice, friendly officer shines his flashlight right in your face, and he does that for a very good reason. It's not that he's being rude. It's that he wants to see what your eyeballs are doing in photosensitivity to the light being shined in your face. And if you don't do a thing, he's concerned. If you flail backwards because this sensitivity to that light is hurting your eyes, that's a good thing. Because that means that you are probably sober or at least more sober as you should be when you're driving a car. If you don't do anything, there's a dullness about you. The idea is if you've had too much to drink and you have very little sensitivity to light in your face, then that probably means you don't have the mental alertness to be anywhere near driving a car. That's the point. Mental sobriety. You're you're clear-headed if you're an elder who is a person who is aspiring to be sober-minded. The word being temperate or sober-minded, is used in a context to speak of self-control, especially in the use of alcoholic beverages, and that's why I use that illustration. This particular word, out of which a word comes, which when you sort of put it together in an English phrase, it's something like this, not mixed with wine. That's right, to be sober, to abstain from wine in the sense that you have a self-control about it. That's what he means. It came to mean metaphorically a mental alertness, to be calm, to be circumspect. It means, in Paul's usage here in 1 Timothy 3, that an elder must be watchful. He has to be vigilant. Do you remember that, that very, very passionate scene? I actually got choked up when I was reading it, when Paul was talking to these very elders of the church at Ephesus there on the island of Miletus, and what he was talking to them about was he said in one of those verses, be watchful, be on the alert. Why? Because you have ravenous wolves from the outside trying to get in to do damage to the flock, and you've even got some men from among your own selves, he says, who, not wanting to spare the flock, but to, to pull them, to push them, to dissuade them from following you as good elders so that you'll follow them for whatever greedy gain, uh, whatever sexual pleasures, uh, whatever they want from you so that they fleece the flock. And he says, whether it's from the outside in, or the inside out, watch out. Be mentally alert. Be vigilant. You're a spiritual leader, so you have to keep alert regarding the flock around you. And if you use the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd, isn't that so clear and clean and easy to think of in our minds, right? No, no shepherd is going to want to be so lazy, so shiftless, so mentally non-alert, That he could be standing right there and there could be a wolf, maybe even in sheep's clothing, who's going to take one of the sheep away and the shepherd doesn't know what's going on. This means you have a balanced judgment. You're free from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. 
Now that's my kind of elder. That's my kind of elder. As an elder, you're temperate when you have the absence of any personal disorder that would distort your judgment or your conduct. And as I've said many times in this series, that's also something that should be true of the flock in general. That we're all to be watchful. We're all to be vigilant. We're all to be on the alert. Just to turn over a couple of books to, uh, to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul even uses for the Thessalonians this imagery of the idea of alertness, being sober, sober-minded, uh, being watchful, being vigilant. Look at what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And he's talking to the entire congregation here. He's writing to the whole group, not just to, to elders. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 6, So then let us not sleep, notice that metaphor, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Uh, we're, we're Christians who are marked by being in the light, right? Being in the daytime. We belong to the day. Let us be sober. Now you see spiritually what he's talking about. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. See, that's for, that's for the whole flock. And since that's for the whole flock, then there is one who might rise above the flock in the service of an elder who has even a more greatly and defined keen alertness about the flock and the needs of the flock. That's that's what we're talking about. That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he told the men particularly because he says in that context, act like a man. And what's the... Uh, What's the character quality of a man? Well, he's strong, and he's courageous, and he says, does Paul, be on the alert. You've got to have a keen mind. It, It includes study. It includes hard study. It includes hard study to be able to to stand up and and preach the Word of God, whether you're doing it vocationally or not. You're an elder who has the ability to open up the Word of God, and with your mental alertness, with your sober-mindedness, you have an ability by God, through His grace, in an effort of His call to be a person who can impart the truth of the Word of God and protect the people around you. Even... Luke 21, verse 36 says, Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do, you do not know when the appointed time is coming. Ephesians 6, verse 18, Keep on the alert at all times, praying in order that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Be on the alert with all perseverance, Ephesians six eighteen says, and petition for all the saints. And you are alert in your prayer life. You're alert. Jesus said, Matthew 24, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Matthew 26, verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus even said to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Revelation 3, 2 and 3, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. 
If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. So this idea, beloved, of of an elder who's going through the spiritual sobriety checkpoint. And when the light of revelation is shined into his eyes, he's keenly aware of what's going on. He's not dull to it. He's got his wits about him. This is a very, very important idea, being sober-minded, being temperate. Here's the second one, the second of our list of seven. And it goes right along with this, not a drunkard. You see that in 1 Timothy 3.3, not a drunkard, not addicted to wine. That is, not lingering long beside wine. That, of course, was one of the most accessible drinks of the day. Could be anything, really, any kind of alcoholic drink. And we need to call it what it is and what the ESV translates here, not a drunkard. I mean, I know that we use so very accessibly these days this idea of the term alcoholic. But the Bible calls it a drunkenness, a drunkard. That may not be the most fashionable or in vogue term, but this is what the Bible says, not a drunkard. Not sitting long at his wine. One who's a slave to his wine drinking. By the way, this particular phrase... Not a drunkard is only used here, and in Titus 1.7, essentially means that a person who is in a position of trust and authority, like an elder, doesn't blunt his alertness by lingering long beside wine. We might use in our own vernacular today, he doesn't have a drinking problem. It's not saying that a person can't drink at all. It's saying, what do you do with the drink that you have, if you have it? Alexander Strock, in his excellent book, Biblical Eldership, says, He is not presenting an absolute prohibition against drinking wine. He is prohibiting the abuse of wine or any other substance that would damage a man's testimony and work for God. That's what we're talking about. See, that's a pretty high standard. Yes, it is. The real key to understanding this particular characteristic of an elder may be a different but related word in 1 Timothy 3.8, talking about deacons, not addicted to much wine. I know that, again, in our culture, the word addictions, that term is, is bandied about all over the place. Somebody's got an addiction to sex, someone might say. And the Bible calls that lust. Lust. And that's not something that simply is that which is of the physicality of a man. It starts in his mind, Right? And this elder has to have a mind, whether it's sexual sin or whether it's drinking and drunkenness, it means that he does not turn his mind to that. In fact, that's the, that's the word in 1 Timothy 3.8, um, pros echo. It means to turn one's mind to, to occupy oneself with. And if it's in the present tense, it speaks of continual action. You should not give your lingering attention, your present active attention to much wine. You should not devote yourself to it. That's the idea. That's the idea. You say, well, I mean, could it be that bad? Try it. Try a church. Try an eldership. And and unfortunately, there are Young men who are starting local churches and for whom you've probably read about 
they sit around their elder meetings and they are drinking liquor, smoking cigars, as though they're old enough and mature enough to say, I can do this. I have a problem with that. Because if you, if you flaunt your liberties like that, then you're probably leaking in a whole lot of other areas. You say, well, what about drinking? I mean, come on, it can't really be that bad. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. I want to show you the Old Testament picture of the idea of what may be a sense of what's going on here. This is, this is a very, very vivid scene. And I think it's an Old Testament version of saying, watch out, be careful, be vigilant, be on the alert, be temperate. Don't be a, a, a lingering long beside wine. Notice chapter 23 beginning in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And then the Bible writer answers his own question. Verse 30, those who tarry long over wine. That's who. That's who has woe and sorrow and strife and complaining and wounds without cause and redness of eyes. Those who go to try mixed wine do not look at wine when it is red, he says, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. Why? That sounds like a nice opportunity. Verse 32, in the end it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Now is that the description of a lush? Of course it is. And that's why, actually... In that, in that same section, look at Proverbs chapter 30. In that same section of the latter part of the book of, of Proverbs, we're, we're told, be careful, be careful, be careful. You have to, to look at how you're leading, how you're leading other people. You, you, you have to make sure that if you're a king like... Um, like King Lemuel or Augur and what he says in, in Proverbs chapter 30, there's, there's all kinds of things. For instance, in verse 20, there's, there's a warning about an adulteress. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and, eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. You've got you to watch out for that. You've got to be careful of all of that. And then you look at chapter 31 and you find that there's King Lemuel and in addition, he talks about, do not give your strength to women, verse 3, your ways to those who destroy kings. And then verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. 
In other words, if you're going to give it medicinally to those who are at death's door uh, for a sedative so that they can forget all their sorrows, that's one thing. But if you're going to linger along such wine, such strong drink as a leader, you're going to forget how to govern. How much truer is that in the church? I mean, would you want to... Would you want an elder meeting where one or two or all the guys are sitting there and they can't figure out even what they're talking about because they're, they're lingering long toward wine? You know what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, your mental capabilities must be impeccable. Impeccable. You say, well, do you drink? You know, I don't. And here's the reason why. Number one, I don't need it. Number two, I don't like the taste. Number three, I don't want my mind clouded in any way. I don't have that good of a mind to start with. Why cloud it with the kind of drinking, let alone lingering long beside it, so that my mental faculties are impaired? I've only got a few brain cells left, and I'd like to keep them intact. That's, that's the whole point. I wish we had time to to go all over the Scripture to talk about the condemnation of strong drink especially. But Hosea 4.11 says, Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. That's what it is. We're to be temperate. That's alert, watchful, vigilant, self-restrained. We're not to be addicted to much wine. We're to occupy ourselves with, give our attention to... The, the mental impeccability, the wisdom, the acute mind, the, the kind of study that your mind exactingly has to take when you're focusing in on the Word of God, let alone preaching. And then here's another, self-controlled. You see that in 1 Timothy 3 two, self-controlled. Your translation might say prudent, prudent. That's good. That's... Sophrana, sophroneo. It has to do with your mind. It has to do with the wisdom. It means you're thoughtful. You're thoughtful. You're, you're self-controlled. You've got a sound mind. You're, we might say it this way. That elder, he's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. He's got an acute sense of what's going on in the flock. He's got the, the, the mental desire and capability and responsibility to, to, to read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to know the Word of God. He's self-controlled. He's sensible. He's prudent. And, and frankly, numbers three and four in my little list really are virtually the same and I think can be treated together. And that's the fourth word, sensible. Sensible. Oh, I like that word. Titus 1.8 sensible. It's sort of an exact parallel to to prudent. It's from the same family of words. It means having control over your sensual desires and you're using good judgment. It's the opposite of a lack of self-control or somebody's intemperance. They're not temperate. They're not self-controlled. 
This is, this is an elder who's prudent or who's sensible. He's thoughtful. He has a restrained sense of himself, his prudence. It tempers his pride, his authoritarianism, his self-justification. An elder in the local church must demonstrate an ability to think in such a way that his mental powers, his, his sober-mindedness, his discreetness, his restraint, his prudence, his wisdom, his common sense are all working at optimum levels. This is a high standard, isn't it? But this is what an elder is. This is by his very nature who he is. People ask me, why do you always recommend all these books all the time? Why are you always putting us and our heads in the Scripture? It's because we need to know so much more. Right? We need to have our knowledge and in acquiring that knowledge commensurate with our behavior. And when our behavior is not up to our level of knowledge, then we need to up the level of knowledge so that our behavior is commensurate with that knowledge. I tell people, they say, why do you have these many books? Why do you, why do you always constantly buy books and read books? Because there's so much I don't know. There's just so much I don't understand. I think of myself even as a preacher, even as a, a pastor, even as an elder, uh, so far away from what otherwise could be a great ability for a man to use his mind in such a way, to use his mental faculties, to read voraciously so that he can start one day to possibly be mature, to possibly grow up. I mean, there are times that I say to myself, Lance, come on, grow up, mature, don't, don't be a... Don't be a guy who lags behind because you're thinking about trivial things. You, you've got your mind in, in other ways. You've got to know the Scripture. You've got to anticipate. You've got to work hard. These sheep need you. They demand your help, your attention. That's why I love doing Q&As because I love being challenged with things that I need to think through. You say, yeah, thinking them through on the spot, yeah, because when I go away from that and I don't think that was a particularly good answer, then I'm going to go find the answer somewhere, somehow, so that the next time I'm ready, the next time I'm, I'm capably answering. Why? Because I want to be alert. And here's one, number five, that just right on the heels of these other qualifications, not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. Titus 1.7. Orgelos, from the Greek word orge, which means wrath or anger. This is a person who is not easily set on edge. Who's not easily flammable. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't just sort of um, explode at a moment's notice. You can even hear or see that idea in the idea of temperance in terms of wine, in terms of his mental alertness and his, and his judgment. Here, a person is being said to be self-controlled in such a way that he's not quick-tempered, using it in that sense in the negative vein, where someone is not so uh, out of control that as soon as something happens, as soon as something quote-unquote ticks him off, he just flies into a rage. You don't want an elder like that. And I've been in some elder meetings where... Something is said, something is done, some decision is made, and it's not what a particular elder thinks about that decision, and you can see red blotches on the neck. And you can see veins pumping. And then, inevitably, a few seconds later, well, I don't agree with that. 
That's a lack of, that's a lack of temperateness. That's a lack of sound judgment. It's a lack of sobriety. It's a lack of a person who is not seeing the moment and saying, if I'm not careful, I'm going to say something that's injudicious. Got to be careful. Stop yourself. Think about what you're doing. Check yourself. Check yourself at the door mentally. Okay, this, is, this vote's not going the way I want it to. This decision's not what I would do. But if it's going to go that direction, what's my response to it? How would the flock want me to respond in this moment? I don't want to be so quick-tempered that I'm going to fly off the handle and I'm going to say something that I would later regret. You've got to be careful. I mean, one of the greatest maturing factors of my life spiritually has been at an early age, in my early to mid-twenties, being involved with other elders And I watched these older, mature men as they conducted themselves in meetings. And I was constantly saying to myself, Lance, you ought to to make sure that you start living like that. You ought to make sure that you're you're responding just like they are. And especially when the, the, the meetings go long, and especially when nerves are frayed, especially as someone once said, and I, I can understand it completely, I've got one nerve left and you're standing on it, pal. You got to be careful. You got to be careful that you just explode like Mount Vesuvius into a rage. And it doesn't always mean that someone's yelling and screaming and it could be that someone is not saying anything but their facial expressions explain it all. Got to be careful. This is this is so critical for the life of an elder. So critical. Now, yes, Mark 3.5 talks about righteous anger, sure. But Ephesians 4.31, which is our category, most of the time, unrighteous anger, right? Anger. We ought to be without wrath. I mean, a man that's, that's given over to quick outbursts, white-hot anger, is not fit to be an elder. If that's, his, if that's his pattern, if things quickly set him off, if he's not the kind of man to be gracious and patient and loving and peaceable at a moment's notice, if that is his knee-jerk reaction, graciousness, peace, love, then you've got the marking, makings of an elder. Then you have the mark of a man who's saying he is working on being even keel. No matter what, no matter what's happening, No matter if the vote goes against him, no matter if something doesn't go his way, you know, one of God's own attributes is that he's slow to anger. Long fuse. Long fuse. Not like the the white hot angry man who's got the short fuse. Anything sets him off. God abounds in loving kindness. So it matters that one of his representatives on earth is loving and kind and gracious. It's a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson, especially when you're a strong leader, right? When you're a strong leader and you see things that aren't necessarily going your way or the direction seems to be going a different way than the way you do it, it's it's of the utmost patience. It's at the utmost control that you don't say something, not only that you would later regret, but that you don't say something that would bring into question your own judgment. Like, what are you doing? What are you thinking You're not as smart as I am. You don't see the direction. And what you have to do is you have to 
pause, you have to think about what you're saying, and you have to consider the other person. And like Matthew 22, if you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, as you love your neighbor, you'd want him to respond to you in the way that you know he wants you to respond right now. Right? Not with a quick temper, but with love and grace. Strock says, with his ugly, angry words, a quick-tempered man will destroy the peace and unity of God's family. The fierce looks and harsh words of the quick-tempered man will tear people apart emotionally, leaving people sick and destroyed in spirit. So a man who desires to be a church shepherd must be patient and self-controlled. Right? The eldership cannot be full of a bunch of powder kegs. Can't do it. Number six, self-controlled. That's Titus 1.8. We've talked about that, but this is interesting. It's translated in the ESV. I love this. Disciplined. Disciplined. Self-controlled. He has a discipline about him. You know what this particular word means? It means that he has mastery. He has mastery of his faculties. He's controlling his passionate impulses and he keeps the will loyal to God and God's will. That's what we're saying. It could also actually imply, I think, self-discipline that you're abstaining from all that the world would say would be an excitement, a stimulant, and ultimately that which would enslave you. And unfortunately, church scenes all over the place are littered with men who didn't have discipline and self-control, and they, they were pandered to by their lusts, by their, their lack of control, by their excitements, by that which stimulates them, and they ultimately became enslaved to it. An undisciplined man, Strock says, has little resistance to sexual lust, anger, slothfulness, a critical spirit, or other base desires. It's true. And number seven, loving what is good. Loving what is good. Titus 1.8. Loving what is good. That particular word, phrase, only used here in the New Testament. One who willingly and with self-denial does good or is kind. Phil agathos. Phileo, love, agathos, good. A lover of good. He's a good lover. You love goodness. It means a, a lover of virtue. This is that man. It speaks of someone with a high moral character. One who's unwilling to cut corners or compromise because he loves the truth deeply. You're ready to do what is best for others so that it might be able to reach out and meet their needs. Someone said it means to give a welcome to everyone and everything that is good. That's what you want in an elder. One who desires to seek the good in others. You want to be a Christ-like example of good. You're ready to do what is beneficial to others for their good. It's the unwearying activity of love. Remember what it said, what was said about Jesus? Acts 10.38, latter part of it, he went about doing good. He went about doing good. And in the last days, according to 2 Timothy 3.3, men will be lovers of self 
lovers of self, not lovers of good. This is, this is so incredibly important. Wrapping it up, you say, what's the, what's the mental life of an elder? He's got a righteous reputation, blameless above reproach, not being guilty of any obvious defect in his character. His love is such that it affords no opportunity for a valid accusation of wrongdoing. He's a one-woman man. He's totally committed to his wife. He manages his own household well. He's not being accused of having children, whether they are inside or outside the home, who despise his authority. Even if he has adult children, they, they manifest a, a, a dignity and an honor toward him as their father, even as adult children with their aging father. That elder is temperate, he's even-keeled, calm, cool, collected. He remains steadfast, stable, clear-headed thinker, disciplined, not self-indulgent, sober-minded, circumspect, vigilant. He's not addicted to much wine. He's not turning his affections towards strong drink, which will cloud his thinking. His mental faculties and capabilities are impeccable. He's prudent and and sensible. His mind has been trained to be wise, thoughtful, self-controlled, discreet, objectively not easily swayed by the court of public opinion, but by the revealed Word of God. He restrains himself. He's free from pride, authoritarianism, self-justification. He remains sober, sincere, sensible, not quick-tempered, which means he's not given over to outbursts of anger or wrath. He's passionate. He's passionate for the truth. He's not passionate about lust and greed. He's not being easily set off into fits of rage, but he's gracious, patient, loving, peaceable, with a view toward God's interests, not his own. He's self-controlled. He's disciplined, steady, consistent. He's mastered his desires. He's not channeling them for unrighteous deeds, but for righteous ones. When Satan attacks, he's fortified with power from God's Word. He shows himself to be an example of restraint and stability to all. He's a lover of good. He seeks to do good, be good to those all around him. He sees their needs arise. He works with virtue, the virtue of love. He allows his mind to be saturated with God's truth so that he might be winsome yet steadfast, loving yet firm, careful yet eager to do that which is right and fair. In short, he's a man of God. He's a man of God. You say, that ain't me. That list you just read, that ain't me. Well, that ain't me either. But that's what I want. That's what I want. Every moment of the day. Every day of the year. Because eternity awaits, does it not? You say, well, the only way anybody could live like that is if Christ is in his life. And if Christ is growing him up in his life, right? And that means I'm motivated to be that Christ-exalting man of God so that God is pleased. And if it elevates me to that position of pastor, leader, elder, overseer, bishop, guardian of souls then praise God that at the Bema seat of judgment, I'll be evaluated for my works. And I say, God, you're using all of this in my life to make sure that I am yours and that I'm growing and flourishing as a man who aspires to godliness. That's my hope, and that's what I hope is your hope. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is, this is beyond us. This is, this is so clear that it's, it's beyond any human being, any mortal man. But thank God it's what you produce in the man. 
We're not saying that this is the perfection of that man, but it is the direction of his life. Even in the midst of his failure, even in the midst of his pain, even in the midst of his his woeful sense of inadequacy, you, by your power, the power of your spirit, and by your word, the very word of God, you continue to hammer and chisel us and make and remake us and transform and reinvigorate us so that we are aspiring to this very noble office and work. And we want that. Because as we read in Acts 20, it was the very church, the very sheep for whom Jesus Christ gave His own blood. And He calls elders. And He equips elders. And He fortifies elders. And He enhances their character and their quality of life so that they are affirmed and that they do serve even if imperfectly. And that's what we want. That's what we want here at Bethany. Jesus Christ, you gave your blood. Should we want anything less than to see these character qualities be fulfilled? Thank you for dying on that cross for sinners like us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the opportunity to see these character qualities come to life in men who would be able to serve as elders and deacons and that your church would be fortified and built up and protected and loved and graciously responded to and and you would be honored and we would all be taken to heaven one day for which you would say to us, well done, good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's our heart. Please bring us men like this. Please fortify those who are in those positions and those who aspire to such. And may it honor you. And may we believe you and trust you and bring gospel grace to us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.